You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, and welcome to the program. This is the Surveyor's Hour on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Lucas. Uh, I welcome you to the program. Uh, you can contact me uh, through um, the email, jeff at americaswebradio.com. Uh, send me questions and comments. Um, tell me what you would like for me to talk about or guests that you might want to come on to the program. Um, you can uh, find out more about me at my uh, personal website, www.lucasandcompany.com. Uh, we have some resources on there, some free resources on there, uh, survey-related um, stuff, like uh, copies of the BLM manuals, uh, other instructions, um, the rules of evidence, federal rules of evidence. Uh, so visit us on our website. Give me, um, send me your comments um, through email. And if you, um, um, I'm not exactly sure who's out there listening to us, but if you're interested in coming on the program, uh, let me know, and uh, we can discuss it and uh, see what we would talk about. Um, we don't have a guest this morning. Uh, I've been working on getting guests here, but this COVID-19 uh, situation seems to have uh, people uh, a little bit uh, freaked out, I guess, uh, or rightfully so. Uh, maybe not freaked out, but we should be, uh, we should all be being conscious of, uh, of our surroundings and what we're doing. Uh, but, um, for surveyors, uh, uh, especially surveyors working out in the field, uh, uh, this this uh, situation uh, shouldn't be impeding uh, a lot of work uh, because uh, it's easy to keep your safe distances in the field. And we were in the field last week when we had the program. I had uh, my guest uh, Clayton Lynch was on, and we discussed surveying. He was sitting in his truck. I was sitting in mine. So safe distancing. But uh, anyway, I'm in the office. This, I'm in the office now and uh, uh, doing the program from the office. And um, last time uh, I remember, we didn't have a guest. We were uh, uh, well. Since we started the program, I've been sort of walking through um, how to win a boundary dispute, uh, how to make a boundary determination that will win in court uh, as a as a general theme which is something that surveyors need to be uh, concerned about because unlike um, well, surveyors, um, more often than um, engineers or architects or, um, or, or professionals of that type, uh, will, will find themselves in court more often uh, than those, those other folks. And, and one of the reasons for that is, which probably mentioned before, is the surveyor especially the boundary surveyor working in the field, um, comes in direct contact with people. They come into direct contact with the property rights of the landowners. And when uh, when things go sour, when the uh, apple cart gets uh, gets turned over, when the status quo um, isn't, isn't being maintained or the status quo is being changed by maybe the activities of the land surveyor, then... Um, Quite often, these things go to court. There's there's a court fight, and the surveyor is going to find themselves, um, possibly find themselves in court, either as a as a witness 
Uh, that's what usually happens when when the surveyor uh, upsets the apple cart, so to speak, or uh, upsets the status quo in the neighborhood. As a general proposition, if the if um, the uh, the new dispute uh, goes to court, um, it will be neighbors neighbor suing neighbor, landowner suing landowner, and um, but sometimes the surveyor does get sued, but. Um, all things, all things considered, what the surveyor—if the surveyor ends up in court—what you, what you want as a surveyor is you ultimately want to be on the correct side of the judgment. You want to be on the right side of the judgment. You want to have a boundary determination that will win in court. So that's kind of what we've been walking through here for the past several weeks. And uh, so we had talked about that, and we got around to a couple of weeks ago. We got around to deed interpretation and uh, if nothing else the land surveyor should be um, an expert in interpreting deeds and, but there's there's some mechanics to that there are rules of construction so to speak there are court made rules on how to interpret written documents and those documents could be anything from a deed uh, to contracts, to legislation, to the Constitution of the United States, to the Constitution of any state in the in the Union, pretty much any written document. The, the courts, for years, centuries, <clears throat> have uh, formulated these rules for interpreting written documents, and uh, deeds uh, are written documents. And for the most part, for the land surveyor. Um, the the most important aspect of the deed will be the legal description or the property description contained in the deed. That will be that will, will be the primary focus of the land surveyor who is trying to uh, inter uh, interpret a deed to to understand what uh, what was meant to be conveyed. Um, so we got into that that discussion. We're going to continue that discussion today. Hopefully, I'll wrap up deed interpretation today. And if uh, if if Time permits. I don't know how the timing is going to go here. We have another case that we're going to look at that uh, determines uh, that um, that is all about uh, deed interpretation and some of the problems associated with deed interpretation, including the rules of construction and including extrinsic evidence. So uh, if we have time today, we might get started with that case. Um, if not, and that case is uh, Dillahay versus Gibbs, another Tennessee case 2011 um, we'll get to that and uh, which would be a good um, a good follow-up to the basic discussion about deed interpretation <clears throat> so the first the first and foremost um, um, issue when it comes to deed interpretation the, the first rule of construction uh, we'll put it that way the first rule of construction how do we how do we uh, look at the construction of this deed, the construction of this legal description. Um, the first and most primary rule is uh, we are uh, we are seeking to find the intent of the grantor, and as the courts say, to a lesser extent, the intent of the grantee uh, when it comes to uh, the interpretation of the deed. We want to know what it was uh, that the grantor intended to convey. And that includes the grantee to a certain extent, but some, some courts have said the grantee is just, you know, kind of a, a second player here, not as important as the grantor. So 
a deed interpretation is all about finding the intent. Uh, the intent of the original grantor, what was meant to be conveyed. Um, another basic rule of construction, or, or what they call the four corners doctrine, is we're going to find this intent by searching the four corners of the uh, of the deed. We're going to look at every part of this deed. We're going to look at all the words. We're going to look at the the words that were used in the conveyance, uh, the words that were used in the legal description, and try to find their their plain meaning, uh, so that's called uh, the Four Corners Doctrine. And it um, looks like uh, we're coming up on a break here uh, in a moment or two, and um, we will continue uh, our discussion on uh, deed interpretation uh, when we get back. Sorry, folks. Uh, that was my uh, technical problem here. I uh, completely blew that break. I apologize. Um, all right. So, deed interpretation. We're trying to find intent. That's the that's the whole thing we're after. Um, intent, in other, in other words, is king when it comes to the interpretation of written documents and especially deeds. Um, but uh, if intent is king, then ambiguities. Uh, are the keys to the kingdom. And what are ambiguities? Ambiguities are more than one meaning, uh, meaning uh, of the interpretation of the words that are being used in the conveyance, uh, in particular the legal description of the property. Um, and um, uh, so there are two types of ambiguities when we're looking at uh, deed interpretation. There's patent ambiguity, which means uh, on the face of the document itself, uh, it is it is ambiguous, and if we're focusing in on the legal description, um, 
a legal description that might not close, so to speak. In other words, uh, for those who uh, don't know exactly what I'm talking about, uh, in a meets and bounds description, there will be a point of beginning, and then the description will go around the piece of property with bearings and distances and uh, essentially come back to the point of beginning, and it's supposed to close mathematically. The geometry is supposed to close without leaving any gaps or overlaps. Uh, so if a legal description doesn't close or if it leaves a gap or overlaps uh, in the description uh, because of the, the geom- there's something wrong with the geometry, then that's what's called a, a patent ambiguity. On the face of it, the deed has more than one interpretation. Um, there, the other kind of ambiguity that we're, uh, that we're uh, looking at or that's available is um, called a latent ambiguity. And a latent ambiguity... Um, the, the deed itself, the legal description, if that's what we're focused on, the legal description closes. Uh, it might be uh, a lot and block situation, lot nine of Garfunkel subdivision, and you look at the geometry on the plat, it closes. Um, um, the, the geometry works, or it could be from the public land survey system, the, or sometimes referred to as the rectangular survey system, it could be uh, an aliquot part description, such as the southwest quarter, the northeast quarter of section 20, township 22 south, range 7 west of the Huntsville Principal Meridian. That is a completely unambiguous legal description um, because um, that describes one 40-acre uh, track, nominal 40-acre track on the uh, on the face of the North American continent, completely unambiguous. But if we go to the field, and we talk about pincushion corners, those are multiple monuments in the ground, all ostensibly representing one corner in legal contemplation. Uh, that le- that eloquent part legal description I gave you, the southwest quarter of the northeast quarter of any given section, township, and range, uh, based off of a, a particular principal meridian, in a particular state, uh, that is, uh, that, that description, um, um, include, that, uh, description, um, it includes the, um, or implicates the center of that section, what we call the center quarter, which was a, a, a corner that was not originally set by the government surveyors way back when, whenever they did the surveys. That was a corner that was to be set subsequent to the original government surveys. And quite often, that is a corner that is uh, in dispute, um, primarily through uh, surveying activity. Uh, it's, it's put in dispute, and uh, there could be more than one monument out there in the ground rep- ostensibly representing that, the center of that section, the center quarter corner, um, and if that's the case, and we've got uh, confusion in the occupation, confusion in the extrinsic evidence, uh, confusion in the location of that, um, or dispute, confusion or dispute uh, over that location, then that's what's called a latent ambiguity. So the, the reason why ambiguities are, uh, intent is king, but the reason ambiguities are the keys to the kingdom um, is because 
uh, that tells us if we've got ambiguities, either a patent ambiguity or a latent ambiguity, that tells us uh, as deed interpreters that we are now uh, free to leave the deed to a certain extent, and we have to go to the extrinsic evidence uh, to figure out what the true intent of the deed writer was, the true intent of the grantor. So a legal description doesn't close. Obviously, we, we don't know the deed. Let's just say the, the description is a meets and bounds description, and it goes around a piece of property, and uh, we find out that it doesn't close uh, mathematically by 60 feet. Well, there's no way to know just from the deed uh, where that 60-foot error is. The only way to find out where the 60-foot error is and what the true intent of the conveyance was would be to go to the field, uh, hire a surveyor, uh, go to the field and make take some measurements and, and, and gather uh, the available um, um, uh, evidence out in the field and conduct a survey of the property to figure out where the 60 feet uh, where the 60-foot error is. So the deed cannot, uh, in and of itself, cannot uh, uh, necessarily tell you where the 60-foot error is. Uh, so extrinsic evidence has to come in in order to be able to properly interpret what the deed is saying. And the same with latent ambiguities. And um, if, if we have latent ambiguities, such as multiple monuments in the ground, that's certainly evidence of a latent ambiguity. Uh, ostensibly, we have uh, uh, different survey. If these are monuments set by surveyors or maybe even landowners, uh, and, and there's multiple monuments in the ground all representing one corner in legal contemplation, that's a latent ambiguity. And even though the deed is completely unambiguous, the southwest quarter of the northeast quarter of any given section, township, and range, we have this uh, late. Uh, we have uh, we have these conflicts in the field. Uh, when when there's an attempt to find that property on the ground, when there's an attempt to um, uh, survey that piece of property, we find uh, that we have these these ambiguities out there. So uh, again, extrinsic evidence then is allowed to come in uh, in order to um, uh, in order to help interpret what the deed is actually saying or what the intent of the grantor uh, was. And surveying a survey of property in and of itself, almost by definition, is extrinsic evidence, okay? It's stuff, extrinsic evidence is simply uh, evidence that exists outside of the written document, outside of the deed, uh, the survey measurements, the, the monumentation that's found on the ground, um, occupation, where, where the people, uh, the landowners, the surrounding landowners believe the corner to be. And it also includes uh, parole evidence. We talked about parole evidence a couple of weeks ago. Uh, parole evidence is um, is basically just oral evidence. It's what uh, the people are telling you as a surveyor. You're in the field. Hopefully you're running into landowners or you're seeking landowners out, uh, and they're telling you uh, things about and whatever they tell you about the boundaries, whatever they tell you about the fences, what does this fence represent? Uh, you know, who built this fence? Why is it in this location? If you want to know what what a fence means, uh, the best way to find out what a fence means uh, as a surveyor is to ask uh, ask some people. Ask them, what does this fence represent? Well, it's uh, in this case, 
uh, Dillahay versus uh, Gibbs, if we get to it, uh, will be about uh, some. There, there's fencing involved that will be uh, a paramount to the uh, ultimate determination of that ba- of that boundary. So, uh, what does a fence mean? Uh, you ask questions, uh, and so that's that's parole evidence. That's oral evidence um, that um, the surveyor certainly should be uh, should be considering. Uh, when making a boundary determination, because as we've discussed before, the, the only people needed to make a boundary determination uh, are, a, uh, are a judge with subject matter jurisdiction and jurisdiction over the parties, impersonum jurisdiction, uh, and, a land, and two landowners, a plaintiff and a defendant. That's all the judge needs. Surveys and surveyors are deemed by most people to be uh, the judges, the attorneys, the landowners are deemed to be helpful, but in the final analysis, they are not necessary uh, for uh, the proper determination of, of a boundary and, and what 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 constitutes the the property line between the plaintiff and the defendant. Because that is that is the, in a boundary dispute case, the, the only it's called the ultimate issue. We've talked about the ultimate issue rule. The ultimate issue in the case is where's the property line located on the ground. That will be the ultimate issue in the case, and unless, of course, where um, uh, this is, it becomes a legal battle. Uh, we're trying the title, and we'll talk about the boundary establishment doctors here in just a minute. But uh, if it's if it's a legal battle, like an adverse possession case, then um, we'll also have, there's also a title argument in there. Uh, what is the property, and has that uh, as the what question? What is the property? Has that has that changed? Has the the title to one to one or both of the properties changed? That's that's a legal argument. But the factual argument of where's the property line located on the ground? That is that's a factual argument. It's not a legal argument. Then um, that's what's called the uh, the ultimate issue uh, in any given case. Now. When we talk about ambiguities, we got to uh, we got to keep we got to think about um, there's there's it's basically an ambiguity is an uncertainty, and as the courts have said, we need uh, in order to use extrinsic evidence, we need uncertainty uh, as to the location of the property lines on the ground. We need a dispute, we need confusion uh, in order uh, to bring in extrinsic evidence, and then apply the boundary establishment doctors. But let's, let's talk about this word uncertainty. Uh, there are two types of uncertainties when it comes to boundary determinations. There's uh, what's called subjective uncertainty, and there is objective uncertainty. And uh, subjective uncertainty uh, looks like this. You've got two landowners... They're living side by side. Um, maybe they're uh, two lots in a subdivision. Maybe it's acreage. But they're living side by side, and that's what's going to happen in this case, Dillahay versus Gibbs. They're living side by side, and they don't know where the, where the, they don't know where the property line is located. Now, um, that doesn't mean that the property line can't be found uh, by uh, an objective observer like a surveyor. So let's say we're in a subdivision somewhere. We got uh, one landowner is on lot nine and another landowner is on lot eight, and they want to build a fence, or one of them wants to build a fence, 
and uh, um, or, or they both want to build a fence on the property line, but they don't know where the property line is. Now, it could be that a surveyor could come out there, uh, an objective observer, no dog in the fight, could come out there and through uh, extrinsic evidence, uh, maybe I guess in a subdivision it would be more, um, more uh, correctly called collateral evidence, taking the plat that is obviously called for in the deed, taking the plat and going to the field and finding monumentation that was set by the original subdividing surveyor, um, that surveyor can co- go out to the field and pretty much, well, with very little ambiguity, uh, could find where the true property line is between the two property owners. But they just don't know uh, where it is, and let's just say they're too cheap to hire a surveyor to come out and survey the property, so they build a fence. Um, that's subjective uncertainty. They just didn't know. It's not that it couldn't be, the true boundary line couldn't be found. They just didn't know. They basically didn't care. So they built the fence. That's subjective uncertainty. Objective uncertainty, in contrast, is um, uh, it, it, it looks like this. Uh, and it would, I'm just going to talk about the surveyor. So the surveyor comes out to the field, objective uh, um, actor in this, in this play, um, no dog in the fight, um, intellectually honest, comes out to the field, um, uh, into the subdivision, into the block, uh, has the plat in hand, and monuments were set um, uh, at the property corners uh, when the subdivision was originally uh, platted and laid out on the ground. And with very little difficulty, the surveyor is able to uh, come down the block and find where the original property lines were originally laid out. <clears throat> that's uh, uh, that's an objective uh, observer and finding no uncertainty. Okay, to speak of, and we got we got when we talk about uncertainty, we need to r- remember the de minimis rule, de minimis non curat lex. Um, the courts do not consider uh, do not concern themselves with trivialities. Um, 100-foot-wide lots, and you're finding monuments uh, 99.95 feet uh, from each other, supposed to be 100 feet. You're off by, you know, uh, 500ths of a foot. Uh, th- that's not that's that's not uncertainty. Uh, that's de minimis. Uh, so surveyors especially need to keep the de minimis rule in, in mind at all points in time. De minimis non curat lex. The law is not going to concern itself with trivialities. Uh a couple of tents one way or the other uh, isn't, uh, when it comes to property corners, uh, established property lines, it isn't a big deal. It shouldn't be made a big deal of. But that's that's one of the problems uh, that, we've, that we have in the surveying profession is uh, many surveyors do not understand or never have heard of the, 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 the phrase de minimis non curate lex. Um, we need to let the trivialities go. Um, many surveyors, their solution uh, to that little dilemma, well, the plat says these are hundred foot wide lots, and I've got uh, I've got uh, monuments ninety nine point seven five feet away from each other. Um, the uh, that's the, the title document says it's hundred feet wide, but on the ground it's not a hundred feet wide. Um, the resolution for too many surveyors in the past, and maybe even in the present, is, well, I've just set another monument, another pin in the ground, and put them 100 feet apart, 
that's that's how you resolve the difference between title and location, title to the property and location to the property. We're going to make the title documents. We're going to force fit the title documents on the ground by putting another monument in the ground, and we're going to make sure that the title documents are satisfied that that those lots are a hundred feet wide. So, uh, but objective uncertainty would look like this. So you have a, an objective observer, an, an objective actor, uh, intellectually honest surveyor will do. Uh, in this case, the surveyor goes to the field, and the surveyor, through the extrinsic evidence, comes to the property line in question, and there's more than one possible location for that property line on the ground. Uh, now, that typically won't be the case in a, in a fairly modern subdivision where um, um, there, there is not a heavy obliteration of uh, corner monuments. Uh, there's a lot of evidence as to where the original lines were were found on the ground or were placed on the ground, and so we have uh, very little uh, um, ambiguity. Uh, but uh, in sectionalized lands and meets and bounds uh, properties, um, uh, the objective observer could go out there uh, and find uh, more than one possible location for the property on the ground, or there's already a dispute. Uh, uh, underway. And if that's the case, then now you have objective uncertainty. And um, we'll talk about uh, subjective uncertainty and objective uncertainty when we get back from the break. And I believe I've got this one right. We're taking, uh, taking a break now. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com. That's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Quick Stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have Quick Stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying Quick Stakes. Did you know that Quick Stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Stakes, your back-friendly steak. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, folks. Uh, Jeff Lucas, your host here on uh, this, on the uh, uh, on uh, the Surveyor's Hour. Excuse me, I was uh, <laughs> I was distracted here for just a second. 
on the Surveyor's Hour, you can reach me at uh, Jeff at uh, America's Web Radio dot com or uh, my personal website www.lucasandcompany.com. Okay, um, so we talked about ambiguities. We talked about the different uh, type and, and ambiguity is just another way of saying uncertainty. And we talked about the two different types of uncertainty: subjective uncertainty. General in the boundary dispute case, that's generally the landowners. They just don't know where the property line, the true property line is located. Uh, doesn't mean it can't be located, um, but subjectively they don't know where it is. They don't have the ability to find out where it is. A surveyor comes along and can find where the true uh, property line uh, is located, has become established on the ground. And uh, as an objective observer, then you don't you don't have subjective subjective uncertainty. You don't even have objective uncertainty. But when the objective actor, um, no dog in the fight, uh, goes out to the field, and there's a dispute, there's confusion, there's more than one possible location, there's uncertainty as to where the property line is located. Now you have objective uncertainty. Now why is that important? Well, that's important because we need to now talk about the boundary establishment doctrines. This is all, this all has to do with deed interpretation. We're talking about deed interpretation here today. And I, I have pretty much come up with, I would, what I would consider to be an exhaustive list uh, of the boundary establishment doctrines. Now, <clears throat> these doctrines are pretty much Universal, and what I mean when I say universal, I'm talking about across all jurisdictions. Um, and when I talk about jurisdictions, I'm talking about states, states in the United States of America. Okay, uh, they're pretty much universal. They're not universally applied, and not every jurisdiction has articulated. When I say articulated, I mean the courts, um, the uh, the appellate courts, the trial courts, but mainly the appellate courts in in our various states, where uh, court-made uh, law, where where um, case law is uh, is determined, is in the court cases that are recorded in the uh, in the case reporters across the country. Um, all all the courts, all jurisdictions have not articulated all. Of these establishment doctrines, uh, boundary, what I call, what I refer to as boundary establishment doctrines. In other words, how do boundaries become established on the ground? Uh, these doc, these are just, these are basically some more of the rules of construction on how to interpret, uh, ambiguous, uh, ambiguous deeds, ambiguous legal descriptions. So, um, but my research, uh, over the last, 15 years, 20 years, uh, I've been working on this stuff, uh, indicates to me that I I think I have an exhaustive list of the boundary establishment doctors. And I'll just, I'll just go through them, uh, to let you know what they are. And and, uh, the first one, I'm going to put it at the top of the list would be adverse possession. But adverse possession is kind of a hybrid uh, boundary establishment doctrine because adverse possession involves uh, a title fight. It involves a legal, the legal, the legal question of title. For instance, let's go back to our subdivision where we had lot, the owner of lot nine, the owner of lot eight. So the owner of lot nine is adversely possessing the west ten feet of lot eight with a fence. 
Um, so the, the, the legal argument in the case would be the Lot 9 owner no longer owns just Lot 9. His title documents say Lot 9. He no longer owns just Lot 9. He's claiming to own Lot 9 plus the west 10 feet of Lot 8. So if that, um, if that, let's say that he's going to be the, this person, Lot 9 owner is going to be the plaintiff in the case. He's going to sue the next door neighbor to try to get that 10 feet from Lot 8. Uh, that's a, that's a, that's a title fight. That's a legal argument. Um, the argument being that, um, the plaintiff no longer owns just Lot 9, but also through adverse possession owns the west 10 feet of lot 8. So if if the plaintiff wins that title argument in court, then the title to the plaintiff's property will change. It'll change from merely lot 9 to lot 9. Uh, in addition to lot 9, the west 10 feet of lot 8. So that, that is an establishment doctrine. If, if the plaintiff wins that, that court fight, if the plaintiff wins that court case, then the title will uh, will change, his title will change, the next door neighbor's title is going to change too. The next door neighbor no longer owns lot 8. The next door neighbor now owns lot 8 less the west 10 feet. So everybody's title is going to change. But it will also, it will also establish the location of the property as well. If the plaintiff wins that title fight, it will establish the location of the property line between the plaintiff and the defendant. If if the plaintiff loses the case, that will also establish the location of the property line between the owner of Lot 9 and Lot 8. It will be the true location of, uh, of, of that line as originally uh, determined uh, through the subdivision of the, of the land um, where the location of the property is as well. So, um, but the rest of the of the boundary establishment doctrines do not involve do not involve the title to the property, and this is where subjective and objective uncertainty comes into play. Um, in the, in the majority of our jurisdictions uh, in the United States, this isn't I haven't done an, an empirical study, but just from uh, reading the cases for and writing about the cases and presenting on, on court cases involving boundary disputes, uh, my anecdotal evidence tells me that the, the majority, the, maybe the vast majority of jurisdictions in the United States require objective uncertainty in order for the boundary establishment doctrines uh, to kick in. In order for extrinsic evidence to come, we got to have objective uncertainty um, in other words, ambiguity, either patent ambiguity or latent ambiguity, for the extrinsic evidence to come in. And when the extrinsic evidence comes in, where are the monuments, where are the fences, where's the occupation, where's the oral testimony? When the extrinsic evidence comes in, uh, then that's how these boundary establishment doctrines have been articulated, by the courts bringing in the extrinsic evidence and determining where the uh, given the uncertainties, determining where um, the, uh, the the true and correct property line is between uh, the plaintiff and the, the defendant. 
<clears throat> objective, uh, subjective uncertainty, as uh, most jurisdictions recognize, if the true and correct line can be found on the ground, and the landowners just don't know where it is, and they build a fence, and they're not on the true and correct property line. So in other words, they build a fence based on subjective uncertainty, not objective uncertainty. Then most jurisdictions look at that as an attempt to convey, since the true line can be found. And they just built the fence five feet off the line. Somebody's gaining five feet, somebody's losing five feet. So in other words, it's looking like a conveyance of land. So most courts, most jurisdictions look at that as an attempt to convey property through an oral agreement. That's what most courts say. Um, and there's a little problem with that, and that is the statute of frauds, which was uh, created uh, in uh, England, but now has been codified in every jurisdiction in the United States of America. Uh, the statute of frauds uh, basically says you cannot convey land without a written uh, memorial through that conveyance, without a written document, generally a deed. That, that's why we have deeds. That's why we have recording statutes. That's why we have deeds, because the statute of frauds demands that uh, property uh, be conveyed through a written document. So um, if we don't have objective uncertainty, we merely have subjective uncertainty, um, and it, it's, it's, it's five feet. Um, somebody's gaining five feet, somebody's losing five feet uh, due to where they built the fence through subjective uncertainty, then uh, most courts see that as an attempt to convey five feet. And um, um, it, one person's gaining five feet and the other person is, is losing five feet. Uh, that generally doesn't work. Uh, now, there are some states that uh, will allow merely subjective uncertainty under certain circumstances, under certain uh, conditions. But my advice to surveyors is you really, you know, you're kind of you're step, this is definitely a gray area for the surveyor. Um, if there's merely subjective uncertainty, and um, now we've got an attempt to convey property uh, um, without a written document, uh, that's that's really that's stepping into some legal arguments that I don't really believe that the surveyor needs to be involved in. Therefore, my recommendation for for surveyors, all surveyors, uh, even in states that ostensibly recognize uh, a, a change in, in in the property line, even through subjective uncertainty, they just didn't know they built the fence after enough time uh, lapses. Uh, then, um, then that becomes the true property line. It's still going to it's going to involve a court case, and it's going to it's going to have to it's going to involve a. Eventually, it will when there's when there's fight over it. It'll have to go to court. It'll have to be settled in court, and then there will be a then there will be a a court decree. So there will be a written document uh, yeah. memorializing the conveyance. Jeff, we're going to have to leave. So, um, Jeff. 
We're going to yes. have to take our next break and uh, let people okay. think about what you just said. We'll be back in a moment with Jeff Lucas and the Surveyor's Hour on America's Web Radio. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number. 800-438-0387 or go to quickstake.com that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E dot com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for Quickstakes today. Okay folks, let's have some fun on America's Web Radio. We love idioms and we want yours. So send it in, go into uh, our homepage, look under the flag at the banner and uh, Click on idioms and send us your idiom today. Thanks. Quick stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have quick stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying quick stakes. Did you know that quick stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick stakes, your back friendly stake. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Welcome back, folks. Uh, Jeff Lucas, your host uh, for the Surveyor's Hour. Uh, send me your comments, send me your questions, um, send me your suggestions on uh, who, who you would like to hear on the program at uh, jeff at americaswebradio.com. All right, uh, we're going to wrap up this discussion here this uh, this week and next week um, with, uh, with the discussion of uh, deed interpretation in mind, um, if I don't have a guest, uh, where we'll go to... Uh, our case I've been talking about Dillahay versus Gibbs and and uh, sort of walk through that case next week and 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 see how put a little put a little bit of meat on the bones I'm laying out today. So uh, boundary establishment doctrines. There's um, again I think I've gathered a pretty exhaustive list and I put at the top adverse possession because it's both a title question and a location question. And the reason I emphasize that is title. To property is a legal argument uh, or a legal question. Uh, location, however, is not a legal question at all. It's a factual question. There's there, there's the title to the property that is the legal question. The uh, the landowner owns the southwest quarter, the northeast quarter of section township and range. That's what. The landowner owns according to the title documents. That's the legal question. Any boundary determination it's, is a two-part question. The first part is the legal question. What is the property? It's the southwest quarter, the northeast quarter, any section, township, and range, principal meridian, any given state. Given 
the title to the property, the question then becomes, the two-part question then becomes, on boundary determinations, then becomes where is that piece of property located? And that's not a legal question at all. That's a factual question. That is the surveyor's question, um, not the legal question. The surveyor isn't a lawyer. Uh, many people have accused me of uh, trying to make surveyors lawyers or attempting to make surveyors lawyers. No, I, I, I don't. That's not that's not my purpose uh, in, in talking about these these issues and on this radio station in a uh, in a, in, an, in a POB article or or uh, in a in a presentation that I do for continuing education. No, that not that at all. Uh, just to do um, my focus is trying to get surveyors to do what they're supposed to do. Uh, given the title to the property, where is it located on the ground? That's, um, and in my mind, an adversely possessed line, even if you're in a jurisdiction that seemingly uh, will accept subjective un uncertainty when certain conditions have been met, subjective uncertainty will move the true line over to maybe the fence they built, even in those jurisdictions. In my mind, adverse possession is a potential property line. It's a potential property line that will not be realized until there's an uh, ultimately until there's a, an adjudication uh, on that line, and then the adjudication, the court order creates the written document that satisfies the statute limit, uh, uh, satisfies the statute of frauds. So, my advice to surveyors is uh, all the elements of adverse possession could be in place. All the elements of adverse possession could be in place. But how was that property, how was that property, the adversely possessed property conveyed to the plaintiff and the defendant divested of that property? Say it's a five-foot strip. Where's your written document? Where's your written document? Now, uh, there is another um, aspect of ad adverse possession that I'll recognize, and that is sometimes... Uh, it's not just bare naked adverse possession that, that the plaintiff has. Maybe the plaintiff has some kind of color of title, uh, meaning some sort of claim. Maybe it's a faulty conveyance. Maybe it's, uh, um, um, not, maybe it wasn't a recorded document. I, some kind, uh, some kind of, uh, a color of title simply means uh, a written claim to the adversely possessed property, some kind of written claim to the adversely possessed property. And in that case, if if both properties, both the plaintiff's property and the defendant's property, are their, their title documents um, claim the strip of land, both of them have a claim to the strip of land through their title documents, and that's really not an adverse possession case at all. Although it might be argued as an adverse possession case, because I believe we discussed this before, most attorneys, uh, I'm going to talk to you about these boundary establishment doctrines. Most attorneys uh, don't know don't know what these boundary establishment doctrines are. They know adverse possession. They can understand adverse possession. They know if that the property's been adversely possessed and all the elements of adverse possession are in place or seem to be in place, and they can and they can win that adverse possession case. See, that's their first go-to. I'm going to win that adverse possession case, and if I do, 
then we will not only settle the the location question, we're going to we're going to settle the title question as well. Uh, and so you get your court decree and you settle both both the legal question, what's the title to the property, and you settle the location question, where is it located on the ground? But um, that if so, if both parties have deeds that ostensibly describe the the um, the adversely possessed piece of property, then what you really have there is possibly a junior-senior uh, conveyance issue, a junior-senior rights issue. Uh, both pieces of property are, uh, the, through the, uh, the title documents, seemingly uh, convey the disputed strip um, to, uh, to, the, uh, um, um, to each of the landowners. That, so that's a completely different argument. Junior, senior, a junior-senior issue is primarily a, a location issue, and a, it is a deed interpretation issue. And one of the primary rules of construction in a junior-senior rights issue is, number one, you have to have a common grantor, or you can't have junior-senior rights. A common grantor who owned both tracks at one point in time. If you go back far enough in the title, you can find a common grantor who owned both tracks of land. And so the rules of construction, which we'll go over some of those, we don't get to them this week, but next week, um, one of the basic rules of construction in a junior-senior rights conveyance issue is that the senior gets what the senior was conveyed and the junior gets what's left over. So in other words, a basic rule of construction in a junior-senior rights uh, scenario is the junior must be read in light of the, of the senior. So in other words, you can't read the junior deed without reading the senior deed. That's, that's a that's a basic interpretation issue when it, if you have a junior senior rights issue. So that's another one of the uh, uh, location uh, location doctrines, boundary establishment doctrines. And they're all location doctrines. Uh, junior senior rights. That's not a title fight. That That's a location question. That's a deed interpretation question. So uh, that's one of them. Next one down is the common grantor doctrine which is also sometimes referred to as the doctrine of monuments now and that's this doctrine it's also it's not a it's not a title fight it's a location question when a common grantor causes a a, a piece of land a tract of land to be subdivided and a plat made surveyor comes out and stakes out all the lots causes the the land to be subdivided on the ground and the monuments placed on the ground, and the monuments are in the ground at the time of the conveyance to the first grantee, to the common grantor, let's just say it's a 40-lot subdivision. Common grantor has this track uh, that he, uh, he or she owns, uh, subdivided on paper. Surveyor goes out there, sets the monuments uh, for the property corner, so when the conveyances take place, the monuments are in the ground. The common grantor says that those monuments... Uh, the common grantor doctrine, or the doctrine of monuments, says those monuments are sacrosanct. They they are infallible. That the title documents, if there is any kind of problem between the title documents and what's on the ground, the monuments on the ground, then the grantor, the grantees, bought the dirt surrounded by the monuments. So the 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 title documents are are have to adjust. The title documents have to adjust to the reality of the monuments on the ground. And that has everything to do with uh, the property rights that attach to the, uh, 
to those monuments that are in the ground, the property rights that attach um, through the reliance of the landowners on those on those monuments that are in the ground and were in the ground uh, at the time of the conveyance. Um, it, it, it all has to do with property rights. That's why that's why monuments uh, have the superior status that they do. It's another just just a rule of construction. Monuments uh, are superior to measurements, generally speaking. That's that's just a rule of construction. We sometimes we surveyors sometimes call that our priority of cost. Uh, natural monuments, artificial monuments, uh, bearings, distances, acreage, calls for joints. Those are just um, those are simply rules for construing um, uh, ambiguous, uncertain. Um, conveyances of land. Uh, and for the land surveyor, that's generally uh, the legal description we're looking at. Okay, there's uh, doctrine of monuments, common grantor doctrine, original surveyor, following surveyor. That's that's a location question. Lines actually run on the ground. That's another location question, very similar to the original surveyor, following surveyor concept. Acquiescence, boundary by acquiescence. Acquiescence has two rules, uh, two roles. Um, acquiescence can be an uh, evidence of where the uh, location, the property is located, the true property line is located. But it's also a location doctrine as well. And again, we got to have uncertainty. We, we need we need objective uncertainty for acquiescence to answer the location question. Oral agreement, uh, oral agreement um, to an uncertain line, an objectively uncertain line. Uh, well, is also a location question, Jeff. Uh, yep, that's about it. That's about it. We got to put a plug in the jug and um, get out of here. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.